The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 410. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Enroll for free. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You can also purchase a course there that will help keep this podcast free of charge. You can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want, an autograph on one of my books. My latest Southern Scribblings is out. It's awesome. But I will be having more books come out this year, so take a notice of that and keep on the lookout for those new books. One, two of those books are going to have to do with classes that I'm producing at McClanahan Academy. So you're going to want those, right? They're going to go with the class. So just kind of a heads up. You're going to want these books. They're awesome. You're going to want those classes too. So if you're ever at McClanahan Academy, you already know about them. You can also support the show by clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can get your logo or my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And of course, you can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, a great website. I teach there with Tom and a whole bunch of other great faculty members, so you want to do that too. And as always, share this podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally because that's how we're going to turn this whole giant mess around. Now, this is not a Think Locally, Act Locally episode other than it's dealing with localism during the war, right? And I talk about the war. If you're from the South, you know what war I'm talking about. But it's the granddaddy of all wars in American history, the War for Southern Independence. And I want to talk about this book that was published about three years ago by William Marvel. William Marvel is a great popular historian. He wrote a series of books on the war. The first one, Mr. Lincoln Goes to War, is just fantastic. It's one of the best popular histories I've read on the war. William Marvel, Mr. Lincoln Goes to War. I highly recommend it. He is not pro-Confederate. He's not pro-Union. It really is a balanced book. He gives both sides the what for when it comes to things he thought they were doing wrong. And he praises both sides where he thinks that it's necessary. He's not anti-Southern, which is a good thing. I mean, I think that's the most refreshing thing about it. He's not really anti-Southern. He... He uh, is not one who would think that Southerners don't deserve some praise. But he is certainly even-handed. Now, one of the things I always liked about that book, there was a section, he talks about it in this book I'm going to talk about today, where he was doing research for Mr. Lincoln Goes to War, and he came across this very interesting piece of data. And that had to do with motivating factors for why men went off to war. Now, years ago, and I think it was, it was in the late 90s, I think around 1997, James McPherson, who was in many ways one of the deans of at least the Lincolnian myth side, the righteous cause mythology, he's the dean of that side. 
James McPherson published a book for Cause and Comrades. The first book was entitled um, What They Fought For, I think, and then he, that was a series of lectures, then he turned it into a full-length monograph. But in that particular book, he does outline, looking at thousands and thousands of letters, why men marched off to go fight in the war. And he found that for the Union, particularly early on, most of the time they were going to fight for the cause of Union. This is what they talked about. They're going to go save the Union. You had a few that would go off for idealistic reasons, meaning they're going off to go and end slavery. You had, you had a few, right? I mean, there were some people, even in 1861, who would say that was one of the motivating factors why they went to war. But it was a very small percentage. I mean, the extremely small percentage. And in the South, you had most men saying they were fighting to simply protect their home from an invader. You did have some Southerners who openly said they were fighting against, they were fighting for the preservation of slavery. But more than anything else, he said, you, they, they were fighting against slavery, and that was their own enslavement by the North. Now, he does say that, you know, so many Southerners had contact with the institution that it was just accepted in his mind that these men were actually fighting to preserve the institution. But the letters don't necessarily play that out. Now, later in the war, he did say Union soldiers would often remark that they were fighting. They were happy that slavery was going to be ended by the war, and they became much more crusading in this way, particularly by 1863-64. So the impression you will get from this is by the end of the war, Union soldiers were marching off in large numbers to go on an idealistic crusade to go end slavery in the South. So William Marvel looked at that, and he found some data. He said, wait a second here, this doesn't add up. We know that, I mean, and even McPherson notes that there are some limitations on what he can do because when you're talking about letters, these are the most well-educated people that you're going to find. And is that indicative of what every soldier thought or just some people that, had, that could read and write? I mean, how did that, what, what is the relationship, what is the correlation between their letters and the vast majority of Union soldiers? So Marvel goes out and he says, oh my gosh, I've just found something that would completely destroy this. Now, he doesn't say that. In fact, he's very cautious in how he approaches this particular situation because he knows he gets, he's going to get viciously attacked for this. But in his mind, the real motivating factor for men to go off and fight for the Union was money. And when I say money, it was a paycheck. So he wrote a book in 2018, this is after his four-part series on the war, entitled Lincoln's Mercenaries. Now, just the title is fantastic. Lincoln's Mercenaries by William Marble. And I'm going to read to you part of the introduction. The reason I want to do that is because he sets out what he's going to do. And then the end of the book, in the conclusion, he brings up post-bellum or near the end of the war and what men were doing at the end of the war. And how he says, here is a clear-cut case of money being a motivating factor for many of the men who went off to fight in the war. Even after the war was over, the army essentially became a giant welfare camp. Now, I want to say this. When John Randolph of Roanoke was alive and in the Congress. He essentially made that claim about the U.S. Army. What you have is a giant welfare camp. It's, it's a government program to give people a salary. The U.S. Army today, while it does, at least in a limited sense, serve a purpose of defending the United States, 
has in some ways become a giant welfare camp. It's a giant uh, indoctrination arm of the United States government. And not just that, it's a laboratory. Because any type of social engineering experiment the United States government wants to foist on the United States population, it's already done it in the military. And, I mean, I give you the... the uh, any type of the social justice stuff that we're seeing, any of that takes place in the army first. The idea of American exceptionalism, American imperialism. And in the next podcast this week, I'm going to talk about American imperialism and how, again, the army has been used as a tool in that in persuading Americans that this is a righteous, just cause for expanding the empire. And the soldiers are part of it. doesn't mean the soldiers are complicit in this. Many of them go into it with blinders. Oh, well, they tell me this is it, this is it. I've taught soldiers for years. And sometimes they're receptive to the idea of an American empire. Sometimes they're not. And that does create conflict at times. But Lincoln's mercenaries outlines how these men, how money, getting a paycheck was a motivating factor. So let me get into that, because it's just so good. It's just so good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. He writes this. He says, A dozen years ago, doing research for the first volume of what will become a four-volume series on Mr. Lincoln's War. Notice he calls it Mr. Lincoln's War. He doesn't call it the Civil War. He calls it Mr. Lincoln's War. Right there is an indictment of the Lincoln administration. That's why I like William Marvel. He's honest about what was happening here. I noticed conspicuous concentrations of shoemakers among early Union recruits. So he looks at this. He says, my gosh, there's a whole bunch of shoemakers signing up for the war on the Union side. Well, what's going on here? So he investigated. He said, then I stumbled on a monograph depicting the extreme economic distress afflicting those shoemakers as the war began. Oh my gosh. So there's a terrible economic depression. Shoemakers are out of work. The war begins, and what do these guys do? Well, they sign up for the army. (laughs) That prompted further research into the crippling recession of 1860 and 61, which is seldom mentioned by historians of the war. Contemporary correspondence, diaries, and newspapers provided some direct evidence and much inferential evidence that this recession contributed heavily to union recruiting during the first year of the conflict. So we have a terrible economic downturn. Awful. And that downturn contributed to men going and signing up for the army. Why would you go sign up? Well, you're going to get a paycheck. It's a big motivating factor. Correlation of those and other sources also shows that other economic factors played a prominent role and filling Lincoln's armies throughout the war. This is why he calls them Lincoln's mercenaries. And in some cases, look at the bounties offered for U.S. soldiers today. Free college education. I mean, uh, on the back end of it. They used to give uh, bonuses. And I don't know if they do this, still do this, because I haven't asked in a long time. They used to give bonuses for signing up. I remember I had a student one year. This was uh, several years ago. He was uh, from Maine. And um, he said that he signed up for for the army in 2001 um, before September 11th, right? He signed up in the summer of 2001, right out of high school. And he gets to to fort gets to, to his station, gets to his fort, 
And all of a sudden, September 11th happens, and now he's training for war. And in his mind, he didn't sign up for that. He signed up to go get some college. He got a signing bonus. He was signing up for the money, for the free education. But now he's got to go fight in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And, I mean, it changed a lot of these guys. This is 20 years ago now. But it changed a lot of these guys. And the same thing was happening here in 1861. A panoply of economic studies of the Civil War have appeared since Charles Beard broached the subject more than a century ago. Those studies have compared slave and free labor or examined the economic causes of the conflict, the creation of the national banks, or the effect of wartime developments on the rise of capitalism. My focus is altogether different. I intend to show that most Union soldiers were drawn from the poorer echelons of American society and to argue that economic influences had a great deal to do with bringing them into the army. So this is a poor man's war. I mean, you often hear it's poor man's war, rich man's war, poor man's fight. But what was the motivating factor? Was it because these men were drafted and dragged into the Union Army? Well, that, that factored into it at times. But he's arguing that men willingly signed up to go get a paycheck and that the pension problem after the war was a result of this type of welfare. The most striking of the evidence is arrived from a statistical analysis only recently made possible by the University of Minnesota's Integrated Public Use Microdata Series. Previously, efforts to settle questions such as the poor man's fight argument had to rely mainly on anecdotal evidence. Economic data from the census was not very useful in shedding light on such issues because it forced a reliance on mean or average wealth, which can easily be skewed. With this 1% sample of the 1860 census, this Minnesota project made it feasible to establish median wealth for every state based on census reporting, which, for all its flaws, is the best information available for so broad a study of individual economic circumstances. Every man from a family below medium wealth was not necessarily poor, but median wealth is more statistically meaningful than average wealth because it separates the poor half of any population from the richer half. I did that with the equivalent of an army division of Civil War soldiers, running the names of every man in 94 sample companies from the northern states through the 1860 census. In deference to the popular belief that the men who enlisted earliest did so from unbridled patriotism, which might infect rich and poor more equally, I focused on the first company mustered into service from each state during the recruiting period. So he's looking at these things. McPherson says that people are signing up because they're going to go out. They're enthusiastic about saving the Union. So he says, all right, well, if that's the case, then the first units mustered in should be the most enthusiastic, and it should be a broad swath of, of an economic spectrum. You should have rich guys, poor guys, middle-class guys. They should all be running out to sign up because this is going to be great. We're going to go fight these evil secesh these traitors, and go put them in their place. We're going to save the Union. He says, I focus on the first company mustered in service from each state during recruiting period. As he said, when no roster was available by the first, for the first company, I went to the earliest for which I could find one. A winner of census research provided Table 1, which appears in Chapter 2 and constitutes the core of this work. With surprising consistency, the data revealed that the earliest units were comprised overwhelmingly from men from families claiming less than median wealth. The preponderance of poor men was almost as significant among those who enlisted later in the war, except in some of the nine-month militia regiments of 1862, and especially the 100-day volunteers of 1864. Direct testimony and examples of individual economic condition augment that data. 
yielding an inference that is difficult to avoid. Patriotic ardor and adventurum spirit, adventuresome spirit and visions of daring do, certain, do surely lure many union recruits, but the desire for economic relief, an employment opportunity, or a financial windfall often provided the initial impetus or the overriding motive. So he's saying, look, there are some patriotic motives, but listen, the desire for economic relief, an, un- an employment opportunity, or a financial windfall often provided the initial impetus or the overriding motive. Lest I be accused of unintended superlatives that cannot be proven, I contend only that economic incentives exerted greater stimulus on union enlistments than has been acknowledged, and that ideology consequently may have exerted less influence than is currently believed. So he's saying, look, I'm not going to say that this is all about economics, because I know people are going to, well, you're just, this is an economic motive. Marble gets into that. He says, look, economics is a huge reason. He's a Charles Beard acolyte in some ways. Huge reason we have the war. Well, you got all these people running around, ideologies, pro-slavery, anti-slavery, that's what it's all about. He's saying, I'm not going to say that there wasn't some of that there, but these people want a paycheck. Abundant and varied evidence reveals hundreds of thousands of unemployed, destitute men scattered across the United States in early 1861. A quarter of a century ago, Robert A. Margo observed that despite long-term growth in real wages during the first half of the 19th century, those real wages dipped significantly between 1850 and 56. Then came the Panic of 1857. Margo further noted that recovery from such a shock required as much as half a decade, but secession followed only three years after the panic, creating a deep recession in the industrialized Northeast and causing both market disruptions and a widespread currency crisis. As newspapers all over the country reported by the end of the winter of 1861, huge numbers of men were thrown out of work or were not receiving their pay from work that they did. Such economic downturns usually create vast armies of migrant job seekers. Yet, Eric Monconin's Anthological study of tramps in the United States from 1790 to 1935 includes no reference to any instance of the phenomenon during the Civil War. One contributor concluded that the war drew many wanderers off the roads and into army camps, which may have been a noble understatement. A notable understatement, excuse me. There is a touch of hyperbole in the choice of title for this book, which carries a tone of unintended insinuation, but encapsulates the subject matter more concisely than anything the diligent pondering of several vocabularians could devise. Union soldiers did technically exercise mercenary behavior if they enlisted because they had no better options for obtaining money or sustenance. So did professionals in medicine or the ministry who joined the army because they could earn more than as civilians. Few of the soldiers fit the popular connotation of someone who will defend any cause for money. and Many of them felt patriotic enough, but students of the phenomenon do not always consider patriotism incompatible with mercenary service. Founding Father Robert Morris even thought early in 1777 that Continental soldiers had become the most mercenary beings because of high enlistment bounties. No other single word except mercenary conveys the sense of someone who takes up arms for monetary reasons, even when that is not the exclusive motive. The financial inducements offered to recruits after the middle of 1863 grew so seductive that few historians have disputed the influence of that money on the decision to enlist and consequently, that period will receive somewhat less attention here. Union soldiers were subject to mercenary motivation throughout the conflict, but the historiography of the war has almost universally presented the volunteers of 1861 and to a great extent of those of 1862 as the purest of patriots. 
For all the recent inquiry into motive, no book has closely examined whether the earliest union recruits might have been attracted by economic need, if not the actual avarice that later enticed so many of the bounty men. It should not be terribly surprising to any believer in the consistency of human nature to find that this was often the case, despite the widespread presumption of greater patriotism then than now. The 21st century soldier is also regarded as less somewhat patriotic, but unemployment and economic disadvantage are still recognized as key factors in recruiting for the American military, something I just said. An important predictor to military service in the general population is family income. Amy Lutz wrote in the 2008 study of today's all-volunteer armed forces, class differences in military enlistment likely reflects differences in the non-military occupational opportunity structured along class lines. Military service poses fewer incentives for upper-class participation, Lutz concluded. Despite other cultural differences, some observ- observations are equally apt to the Civil War, which erupted in an era shaken by tremendous cultural ferment and economic transformation. While the source material for this book was drawn from all the loyal states, the statistical analysis of soldiers' financial circumstances is limited to the 16 contigu- contiguous United- northern states in Kansas. Border states are not included because they, pre- they represent political complications that could easily be mistaken for economic motivation. My scrutiny is also necessarily confined to white troops. The antebellum financial status of most black soldiers cannot be reliably documented, and much of that population would have been actuated by other obvious reasons that could not necessarily be attributed to their white counterparts. So, I mean, this is amazing. This is, this is a gutsy book. I ha- you have to hand it to William Marvel. He is taking a huge stand here for saying, look, I know all you all running out there, you establishment historians who are out there today saying this is all about slavery. This is all about slavery. He's not saying that at all. He's saying it's not about slavery. It's about money. It's all about money. Now, think about that. This is huge. You won't find this book in many notes. Now, Gary Gallagher and James Robertson and George Rabble all blurbed it. Gary Gallagher is actually a a pro of a historian. He's not, I mean, he he writes stuff even if it's not going to be popular, he just goes where the sources lead him. And this is exactly what William Marvel is doing here. Now, James Robertson, of course, wrote a wonderful biography of, of Stonewall Jackson. But he's going where the source material leads him, not anywhere else. Now, he gets into the Confederate side here for one second, one brief paragraph. He says, Some will inevitably wonder if Confederate recruiting followed a similar economic demography. He says there's a recent work that indicates that Southern soldiers responded to different circumstances and and incentives. Wealth did did convey a measure of immunity from service in the Confederacy, though not to the extent seen in the North. So if you had money, you were immune, but not to the same extent as it did in the North. So if you were rich in the South, you still would have to go and fight. As the profusion of soldiers from slaveholding households suggests, southern troops were more likely to receive their own interests in the war effort unrelated to Confederate script. Even if rebel armies had been disproportionately composed of the poor, an effort to determine why would be complicated by such factors as more comprehensive conscription, worse inflation, and the inclination to defend one's homeland from invasion. In an essay that appeared a few years ago, Adam Rothman remarked that military historians are losing the battle for Civil War historiography to those more interested in the social and cultural history. Citing in particular uh, Chandra Manning's What This Cruel War Was Was Over and its theme of anti-slavery sentiment among Union soldiers. 
I see no battle between two types of history, although I do perceive a struggle for interpretive dominance. Some of the same sources that led Manning to a conclusion of soldier support for emancipation or persuaded other historians of certain soldiers' patriotism also provided me with evidence of men who enlisted for the money they could earn. So he, he points out here that, look, this is, this is problematic. We have these social and cultural histories going out and saying this is what it's, it's all about slavery. And he's saying, I read the same stuff, and this is what I got out of it. So it's interpretation. I want to point this out because there are no facts in history. It's interpretation. I mean, there are some. I can't say there are none. There are facts. But most of history is interpretation. So what you're seeing in America today, and people run, I'm a professional historian, the Twitter, the Twitter historian brigade. An actual historian says this, an actual historian. These people are very proud of themselves for being actual historians. Well, William Marvel's an actual historian who doesn't have a PhD, but he's an actual historian. And that's a beautiful thing. You don't have to have a PhD to be an actual historian. Most of these PhDs couldn't write a sentence that anyone would want to read. So they're ridiculous. But they have their biases and their motivating factors, which are going to be, when it comes to the war, social and cultural, because this is what they get in graduate school now. You go into your graduate seminars, you're told to read these books and these articles, and you do this, and oh, well, this is what it is. I've got to regurgitate all this nonsense so I can get a degree, and then I can go out and I want to get a book published, so I'm going to regurgitate the same nonsense again because it's what people want to see, and then I'm going to regurgitate the same nonsense so I can get a tenured position, and then I just keep regurgitating that nonsense because this is what I think. There's no, there's no backbone. There's no bold initiative. William Marvel has more backbone than any of the, like, Chandra Manning. I mean, more backbone than, than she ever had for writing this book. It doesn't take someone with backbone to produce the garbage that's produced. That's easy. You're, you're just siding with the prevailing opinion. You stuck your finger in the air. Oh, the wind's blowing this way. That's what I'm going to write about. But Marvel didn't do that. No matter how many personal accounts may sustain a particular hypothesis, they cannot reveal the extent to which poor men carried the burden of the Civil War. The statistical analysis used here provides more reliable proportional evidence, even from a relatively small sample. Still, those personal accounts remain relevant to the narrative. Dry numbers may outweigh individual testimony as evidence toward a logical conclusion, but they will never replace diaries and letters as an expression of human experience. For that reason, I include the words of participants to support and season the statistical evidence. So he says, look, I'm going to give you examples where these guys said they're fighting for money. And then he gets into the the chart, and I'm just going to point this out. He's, he looks at all the northern states, and he points out enlistment numbers. And he says, look, in Connecticut, for example, over 70% of the men who signed up for three-month enlistments, enlistments three-year enlistments, nine-month Enlistments in 61 and 62 were from families below medium household income. Now, those that signed up in 1861 for a three-year enlistment were generally still over 50%, but not in the 70s, 59%. In, in Illinois, it was over 60% every time, except near uh, the end of the war. And you talked about Indiana, over 60% early in the war. Iowa, at least over 50%, but also over 60% most of the time. Kansas, over 60%, 1.87%. Maine, 50%, 60%, 70%. Massachusetts, 
Michigan, Massachusetts, of course, hotbed of abolitionism. you got most of these guys from poor people signing up. This is just a beautiful book. And then at the end of the book, and I'm not going to go through the whole chart, at the end of the book he does something amazing when he talks about what happened when the war was over. He brings up the pensions. The pensions. He calls this chapter the needy hero. The needy hero. These are the guys that were going out to get pensions or staying, sticking in the army. Sticking in the army because they needed a job. They were making more in the army than they would in the private sector, so they stay in the army. They're just going to get, they're, they're on the public dole. I mean, look, Hamilton pointed this out. These soldiers in the American War for Independence, these guys, I mean, they, they wanted a pension. There was almost a revolt over this, a coup attempt, essentially. In 1781. So, this is amazing stuff, but that's focused on. But nothing in the war here, because if you point this out during this period of time, you're basically denigrating the men who fought for the Union. You're saying, well, look, I mean, this whole idea of this social cultural crusade, it doesn't even hold water. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. These guys were fighting for the Union. This is why I mentioned, or a paycheck. This is why I mentioned the real reason for Union monuments. This is why they didn't mention slavery. Because a lot of them, they didn't care. They were fighting to get a paycheck. They preserved the Union, great. They beat the South, fine. Who cares about what happens down there? It wasn't even a factor for most of these guys. And then the pensions. This is why Grover Cleveland was vetoing so many pensions as president. Because he said, these, these things are, guys are asking for pensions 20 years later for diarrhea. I got diarrhea. But you didn't have it until now. How is that caused by the war? Or people that die, there was one case, a guy dies trying to trying to flee the army, right? He's trying to go AWOL, and he dies, and they want a pension out of this. For what? So this is a really good book. William Marvel, um, he's received all kinds of book awards, the... Uh, the Richard Barksdale Harwell Book Award, the Lincoln Prize, the Douglas Southall Freeman Award, the Bell Award. I mean, he's written some great stuff. He's a popular historian. He's not a professional historian, but I would highly recommend Lincoln's Mercenaries, Economic Motivation Among Union Soldiers During the Civil War. It's a nice short little book. Very good. And I don't do enough book reviews here. I should do more of them so you can go out and get some good stuff to read. But this is excellent. It should be added to everybody's shelf that's interested in the war, along with McPherson's Call for Cause and Comrades. It's, it goes into that. Gary Gallagher's The Confederate War and The Union War. Both very good. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then. <laughs>